Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 510. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. H&M. And I'm Lorraine Sink, the incredible spider cat. I don't know. Now I'm... that is a Lorraine Sink who is deep in the throes of moving into oh, a brand new house. <laughs> How you doing? Ryan, I don't know where anything is and I'm tired and I'm sore, but you know what? I have house, so my problems are not that bad. For real. It's going to be amazing. You'll eventually get to a point where you're like, I can relax for a little while and just look around and be like, this is mine. When my hall is not plastic wrapped, I will be (laughs) over the moon. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. I get it. But we have so much to talk about this week. This is the show where we tell you all about what's happening this week in Marvel from games, comics, movies, TV, or whatever we're excited about. And the thing that I am most excited about, my teeth hurt. I'm so excited about it is Marvel Studios What If, because y'all, it premieres on Disney Plus next week, Wednesday, August 11th. I love it so much. I love it so, so much. No spoilers. But there are some fun spoilers if you want to check out some of the Marvel Legends figures that are inspired by the series right now. There's so many good ones. The Captain Carter one in particular, Peggy is the bomb. But there's a ton of cool ones. The Marvel Zombie figures, obviously, flipping great. So just so many. Go check those out over on Marvel.com or over on the Hasbro website because Oh, baby. Yeah. I do want everybody listening to stay tuned because we will have folks from Marvel Studios What If here on This Week in Marvel soon. We've been doing some interviews, getting some stuff ready, getting hyped, getting excited. It's going to be fantastic. Over on Marvel's pull list, since we're talking about What If, I did want to mention that this week we have kicked off a full month of What If focused shows. And so this week, our guest is epic veteran Marvel editor and writer Ralph Macchio. He comes on talking about the creation of the What If comics in the late 70s. He talks about editing some of those stories. We run through a bunch of the What If stories from volume one. And then he gives us some incredible stories about working with Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. Ralph is just He's 35 plus years at Marvel. He's seen and done so much. It was so cool. Also on that show, we talk about our favorite books out this week. And so our picks are Deadpool, Black, White, and Blood, number one, Immortal Hulk, number 49, and Guardians of the Galaxy, annual number one. Those are friggin' great comics. Yeah. But we have more to talk about this week in Marvel. We've got Marvel Studios, Loki. We did a very special video with Brad Parker one of the VFX supervisors on that series. And we did two different videos, one about the CGI characters on the series, like Miss Minutes. And we go through how she was created and inserted and put into the show. And then we look a little bit at the TVA and the Citadel that you see at the end of time, which are really, really fun. It was really awesome talking to Brad about those. There's so many interesting crazy processes that everything go through. And you can really see sort of all the inspiration and what made all of that stuff come into being. It's really cool. You can check those out on marvel.com or the Marvel YouTube channel. Now, Lorraine, and you say, we did this. Lorraine, take all the credit because <laughs> you did this. Of course, there are editors and stuff, but this is a Lorraine Sync joint. You deserve the credit because those are great pieces. You oh, always thanks. do amazing work. It's a Lorraine Sink joint. Make sure you check that stuff out, y'all. 
Yeah, I really enjoy getting to do these pieces in particular. I think they're really fun. And honestly, you know, so many people who work behind the scenes, like VFX supervisors, editors, all there are so many people who work in post, and they are such an important part of the Marvel Universe. And honestly, the, the biggest feather in their cap is that you don't even think about them because it's so seamless. The worlds are so real. You know, but there's a lot of people who put in that work. So I, I'm always really excited to get to talk to them. Hell yeah. All right, let's shift gears, talk about some Marvel game stuff, because there's stuff always happening in Marvel games. Over in Marvel Puzzle Quest, Captain Carter's costume, which is inspired by Marvel Studios' What If, is now available in the game. Yeah. And also, All Father Odin has joined Marvel Puzzle Quest. So MPQ up in your head. Okay. Is that a thing that we say? Uh, it is now. It is now. Uh, <laughs> and hopefully everybody out there got a chance to jump into Marvel's Avengers for free on PlayStation or PC this past weekend. I tried. Every night we get done with lifing at nine o'clock mm -hmm. with a toddler and you're just like, I can't think. What am I doing? And so I haven't had a chance to play any video games lately and it's bumming me out. Yeah. I'll, I'll do something fun in a month with my house. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Lorraine... It was Spider-Man Day. Well, it was the world celebrated Spider-Man Day recently, although everybody knows it's not quite exactly Spider-Man Day, but we, we look at August Ryan, 1st as Spider-Man Day. Yeah. Ryan, just let us have fun. I know it, historically <laughs> comics came out on a different day than the print date on the cover. Just let us enjoy the Spider-Man Day. You can be smart some other time. No, I can't. Uh, but yes, there was Spider-Man Day. And part of that was announcing Beyond Amazing, Spider-Man's 60th anniversary, which is happening next year. So there's going to be celebrations all year long with Marvel Comics, games, shows, collectibles, fashion, and more. You can go to Marvel.com. You can check it out. There's going to be a hashtag called Spidey Beyond Amazing. That's hashtag Spidey Beyond Amazing that we'll be posting updates all across social media about that. Also, there's some merch that I feel like you have to get for Catherine Grace. Marvel's Spidey and his amazing friends mm -hmm. has put out a whole line of little kids' clothes and bedding and toys and learning toys and houseware stuff. Oh my gosh, it's so cute. You guys can go check it out over on marvel.com to see it all. And of course, it's all in association with Marvel's Spidey and his amazing friends. The show that is going to premiere on August 6th on both Disney Junior and the Disney Channel. Also, there's some great content around the series on Marvel's Marvel HQ channel, which is youtube.com slash Marvel HQ. But man, so cute. Have you looked at this stuff? She needs that little like Spider-Man coat. Oh my gosh. Get out. It's so cute. It's like a letterman's jacket, but it has all the Spidey's faces on the blue sort of body part uh, and like a little Spider-Man hoodie with the eyes on it. It's so cute. If you do not buy it for her, I will. Holy moly. Yeah, she loves Baby, as she calls Spider-Man, but she learns about all the different characters. I'm excited for her to learn about Gwen and Miles a little bit more. There's some really great toys here. Yeah, this is wonderful. I got to get all this stuff. And yay, Celebration, the series premieres this week on Disney Junior and Disney Channel. I'm excited to watch it side by side with my kiddo. It's so cute. They have the cutest little voices and the animation is really, really phenomenal. I can't wait for people to watch it. It's very wholesome. Good fun. Yeah. Also wholesome, good fun. How about that trailer for Venom? Let there be carnage. I don't know if wholesome is the right word for it, but definitely fun. 
great additions to the cast. I'm really excited to see it. I mean, come on, bring us the Cletus. I love that first Venom movie. And that's all I want is a good time. Like when I read a book such as The Darkhold, because okay. this September, a new mystical Marvel saga <laughs> begins in Darkhold Alpha number one. Uh, we just got some preview art and stuff on Marvel.com. The Darkhold is the big, mysterious, dangerous, scary book from you know Marvel Comics, and it can unleash chaos on the Marvel Universe. So we're going to have stories by Steve Orlando with art by Keen Tormey, who's doing some really cool stuff. There's uh, one shot, and then there's going to be a bunch of tie books like Darkhold Iron Man and Darkhold Blade. Ryan North is involved and Daniel Kibblesmith. And so there's some really cool stuff coming here. I I like that the sweet funny boys are doing scary books. Yeah, it's the best. Also look out for in October, Darkhold Iron Man number one and Darkhold Blade number one. It should be a really rip-roaring adventure. And I mean, come on, Scarlet Witch and the Darkhold, give it to me. All right, it is time for our interview this week, and we have Timothy Busfield, star of Marvel's Wastelanders Old Man Star-Lord, to talk about making of the podcast series and what it was like to play Star-Lord. It was a great conversation. Dude is wonderful, had a lot of great insight. Awesome. Let's listen. All right, now on the show, we are joined by Timothy Busfield, star of Marvel's Wastelanders Old Man Star-Lord. Hello, sir. Welcome to the show. Hey, Ryan. How you doing? Doing wonderful. I'm very excited because at Marvel, I, I've been at Marvel 15 years and seen so many cool things that we've done. And when the, the team started planning out the Marvel's Wastelanders world and these stories, I got super excited because I love the comics. I love the background of all this stuff. And so I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about all this. But before we get into all that, I would love to know what your Marvel origin story is. How did you first connect to the characters? Did you read any of the comics? Did you see any of the shows when, you know, years ago? What was it for you that first connected you to Marvel? You know, as a kid, I grew up, my mom would get a, a cabin on the little peninsula in Lake Michigan. I had a single mom with three kids and we didn't have a TV. And so we'd get comic books. And I have to confess, I was more of an Archie comic guy. But In 1967, they came out with Spider-Man, and I was 10. And at that point, I completely went head over heels for every Spider-Man. I read them all. I was not necessarily the entire Marvel Universe. There were characters I didn't relate to. You know, I I was just, they were a part of my life, my childhood, especially through Spider-Man. That cartoon to me, that and Johnny Quest. Oh, yeah. Were my my childhood as far as my favorite cartoons of all time. So I had a Marvel cartoon as my favorite cartoon. And the comic books got me through being, uh, you know, on Lake Michigan in the summer. I didn't read books. I didn't read. I like comics. When I think about what we threw away, it's just, uh, you know, mind boggling. You know, we had a giant chest of Marvel comics and baseball cards, including Mickey Mantle and people oh, no. like that. And, you know, an original going back to the 60s, you know, they'd come out. My brother was much more of, of a lot of the other comic books. I, I really, I guess the Revenge of the Nerds in me, I like Jughead uh, in the Archie comics. So, sure. I, you know, and the fact that he was, you know, a nerd, that made me laugh. And I just really loved Spider-Man. I really, as a kid, too, and as a kid, you know, trying to fit in a young guy. I've always loved action adventure. I've always loved, uh, you know, fantasy and and sci-fi. You know, that kind of stuff is my staple when it comes to watching or or listening to things. Uh, You know, that even 
back when we had eight track cassettes and I had a Volkswagen Beetle in 1974. Hell yeah. I would jam in old time radio, the old mysteries and things like that. So I really fell in love with old time radio. So when I was approached to play old Peter Quill, old Star-Lord in a radio format, it just was all too exciting for me. And that's sort of how I, you know, my past and sort of the opportunity to put those two together with, with this, it's been a sort of dream come true. That's awesome. I, I want to get into a lot of those things. I, I want to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned baseball cards. What were the things that you were collecting? I just bought a house not too long ago. And so now like I lived in Manhattan for 15 years. And so we had a storage unit. And now we live in a house in, in Riverdale in the Bronx. And I have everything together. And I'm like, I have too much stuff. I've collected too many things over the years. What was it for you? Did you collect things aside from those cards and comics? You know, I collected the, those things just sort of went into a pile. You know what I mean? They just, we just didn't want to get rid of them. And it was as much my older brother, Buck, as it was me. Between the two of us, you know, and I collected what he collected. I would collect, you know, I was a good baseball player as a kid. That was a sort of one thing I could do in one sport I could play. And so, you know, baseball cards and the who's who in baseball and knowing the stats of the players. And I'd gotten so many baseball cards that my brother could go to the who's who in baseball and bring up a name and ask me what their career batting average was. And I'd probably guess it. So collecting that stuff that interested me was baseball cards and and really comic books and uh, any James Bond record or James Bond, anything I could find about James Bond, I would collect. That stuff is really what I love to be. And my brother was five years older than me and my mom was a, a single working mom. So I was a latchkey kid. I spent a lot of time on my own playing at, at, you know, by myself and with buddies without supervision, wondering, you know, what superhero I could be or what James Bond. I knew I was never gonna be James Bond. I could never be Sean Connery. Maybe Felix Leiter, uh, his right hand. It was at an early age I realized I could be the buddy sure. to a superhero. I never thought I'd be a, an actual superhero, but. Look, Star-Lord's got, got a lot of uh, superheroing days in him. I mean, there's there's a lot of different levels of his superheroing, and I'm sure that's got to be a lot of fun to get into some of those stories as you've been doing the podcast. Because when it was being developed, I'm friends with Ben Percy and, of course, the the writer of the series. Great. Brilliant. Right? Brilliant. Like, oh, oh my gosh. Gee, come on. He, what, he wrote every word. Seeing these guys write every word. You know, in TV, you'll get a script from a writer, but by the time you get it, it's probably been rewritten by somebody else, by their showrunner. You know, by the, the head writer on the show will take a, a whack at it. So you don't really know who wrote what, but, you know, Ben Percy, it's clear he wrote every word of this. It's like a really good feature, really good play. Those experiences I've had working with those Academy Award people or Tony Award people, Emmy Award writers who, you know, originals like Sorkin or Zwick and Herskovitz, those guys from 30-something. When you read the writing, it's just clean from beginning to end and and one person's sort of vision. I, I'm really impressed with Benjamin. He's a great writer. Yeah, great writer, total outdoorsy, like brawny. I don't know if you've, you've been able to, to meet him in person, but if you look at his social media, there's pictures of him like chopping wood and he's he embodies this like survival wastelander dude, which is so great because he gets that feeling. Into, Perfect. Yeah. He must be funny too. Is he oh, funny? He is. He is. Yeah, because 
that, that's what struck me. You know, you ask about the origins, you know, they sent me the material. And the first thing I did was laugh. And I just, I'd go into the bedroom where my wife was sort of watching TV or whatever. And I'd be like, listen to this, listen to this. What an idiot. Uh, this guy, he's such an idiot. He's a superhero of idiots. He's great, you know? And I just really love when I can get that excited about writing. It's rare. And you also asked, just to go back a little yeah. bit, of course, like, you know, in all the roles I play, there's a certain amount of homework that has to be done. So I have pretty much a, a catalog of all the Guardians of the Galaxies and would go through them time and time again. And I realized that, you know, early on that we were not the, you know, TV shows or the movies. We were coming from a different direction. So my homework took me into that. And that was exciting as well to see how this guy came to be and the hearts that he attracted and broke. I think, you know, one of the great things about Peter Quill and his attractiveness to other interplanetary, you know, female types is his genuine, sweet lack of superpower guy, you know, that there's a genuineness. Not that it isn't in all those characters, but, you know, he doesn't have Thor's hammer. He doesn't have that connection that some of those guys might have, or Spider-Man's, he wasn't bitten by something that he can swing from building to building. There's a genuine belief in what he's fighting for in a very earthy way. And, you know, they really connect to it with the music and, and the stuff you see in portrayals of Peter Quill. But that innocence to him and his ability to have his heart broken through the relationships that he had, you know, and being sort of stripped from his world, abducted from his world, you know, lends a, a real kind of tragic sweetness to the guy, which I think has been portrayed in every corner of any performance of Peter Quill that's been out there. And there've been a number, but that is at his core and discovering that in the comics was really helpful to me to get a beat on who he is and where he's coming from. I like the the fact that, and you sort of alluded to it, that he's not Spider-Man. He's not a cookie cutter Marvel superhero. Marvel superheroes aren't cookie cutter. That's kind of what makes a, our <laughs> universe is so wonderful. I am biased, of course, but, yeah. you know, I, and at times he's kind of a selfish <laughs> and at times he's, yeah. you know, like all over the place and he's strong headed. He's a very human character. And I'm sure that's right. got to be a lot of fun to see this character that you can find different layers as you're going through his story. You know, it is. And, you know, he. if you look, though, if you look at troubled kids, and I've taught a lot, and I taught at Michigan State a few years ago, and I've been, my children's theater were 360 performances a year to 150,000 kids a year, and, and I founded that in 86. So I would go into the schools, and I was looking for playwrights. I was looking for writers. And I would say to the principals that those kids that are having a difficult time that are having trouble fitting in, parents aren't around, or maybe from an abusive environment uh, are needing attention. Those kids are the ones that are probably gonna make our best artists. And I wouldn't ignore them or categorize them as troubled kids. And Peter Quill, his childhood and early life was that of a troubled teen, troubled kid. You know, he didn't know who his dad really was. and. You know, to find out that he's just on, you know, later is his dad and and that he has connections that he couldn't fathom would lend to take a young person and and make their life difficult and make them a problem child. So not 
uncommon for that kid to become a thief or a grifter or a liar or somebody who's really good at playing a scam because he, he's got an edge. It comes from not having a normal, you know, adjusted childhood. And uh, this is a guy who was, you know, forced to be a thief young in his life, you know, and adjust to where he's at. In the comic books, it's later than what you might see in other forms, but still the adjustment that he had to make to survive when all he knew was Earth in the 80s. And the next thing you know, he's having to survive interplanetary social worlds. Um, there's an edge. You know, if you look at Thor and those guys who were the kids or, you know, of gods, they grew up privileged, you know, and you look at their moms and you look and you realize what they came from. They had superpowers, but they were sort of blessed to be part of a healthy, uh, I guess, healthy uh, uh, family environment. But that's not the same with Peter Quill. He was an uh, earthling, for the most part, who had to rediscover himself as somebody, you know, out there. And so cheating and lying and manipulating and grifting and conning that became his survival, and, and now we see him at 63, and people don't change that much, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's a, um, have you seen the films for Guardians of the Galaxy? I show up every single one over and over again. Yeah. I, I can't get enough of Chris Pratt. I can't yeah. get enough of all those guys. It's like the Marvel multiverse. You know, there's <laughs> there's versions and stories, and the, the comic is different from your version of Peter, which is different from, you know, what we'll see in the animation, what we'll see in, in the movies. But in the movie... I'm also, you know, I, I was raised by a working single mom. So I, you know, I, I get it. I was an only child too, like Peter. And so, especially in that first movie, the scene with his mom, like that is so, that hits so close to home. And I, to your point of like him having to sort of get hard a little bit to deal with the situation because he was abducted. I'm like, I raised by a strong mom and had some good support system thankfully things can go so differently it's it's interesting how we can connect to a character who carries two blasters and and soars around space but you know that's the beauty of these kinds of stories yeah especially that moment you're talking about you know really they used to create the rebel in him you know revenge of a source became a calling card to quill in the movies and they had to get to it quicker they had to uh, be strong about that in that form. Whereas in the comic books, you had endless stories to really kind of show and go back and really see exactly who he was and how he survived. But yeah, they use that well. And, you know, you know, as an only child and from a single parent, you look around and especially when we were growing up and you see all these families that aren't that. And you're the one in my neighborhood in East Lansing, Michigan, I was until about nine, I'd never heard of that, you know? So I always felt a bit outside and have probably tended to play characters and relate to characters who were a little bit against the system because of that. And uh, I like how they did it in, in the movies. And I like, it's later in the comics, but it still is the same. He still has no relationship with his dad. He still is has a destiny that he can't come to terms with. And I believe in that stuff too. And I like how, you know, there's a, in comics and they, how they draw that. And you really see it in more of the alien characters that their destinies matter. They're destined to do the things that they do. And Peter Quill, to be a, an earthling for the most part and be destined 
to being, a, you know, an interplanetary star lord, <laughs> as he calls himself, would create a, a lack of, you know, it's not like, okay, I got it. I'll be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor. You know, you're not that guy. So that was helpful. And the movies could be helpful there. And certainly the tongue in cheek attitude that the movies bring that Benjamin captured so incredibly well. And that's there, you know, those guys that created Marvel, they use their laughs and their humor just in the right spot all the time. Not as much as you might've seen in the last 10, 12 years of stuff, but it was always there. There was always a moment to smile at somebody being, you know, you're gonna do this or you're gonna, and then something silly would sort of undercut. And you knew that Stan and the other our artists that were drawing those comics and stories were giggling about what they were writing. And I think that's been captured always from Spider-Man, you know, the cartoon all the way. They've always kept a bit of that. And Benjamin Percy really got that. And Kimberly Senior, our director, who just did a brilliant job at navigating performance, allowed and encouraged us to go beyond what might be on the page to help create those relationships. She did a, she's the real deal, that girl. Yeah. I, I want to talk about the folks you worked with in a minute, but uh, just thinking about, you mentioned the characters that you're attracted to, the roles that you've sort of wanted to play. How do you go from, you know, being the kid in Michigan to getting into acting, to directing, to really like getting all wrapped up in, in the arts like this? Well, there, it's interesting. My dad and my mom were divorced at two. My dad was a professor at Michigan State University. So in the basement as BB gun targets were death of a salesman poster. And my brother was in plays. My sister was the star of plays in high school. We had a strong theater program. I saw my brother in HMS Pinafore when he was 11 at our elementary school. He was in sixth grade and I was in first grade. And that was the first time I'd ever seen theater like that before. And and it was my brother. And then they had a sleepover with his buddies and they were in the play. And so there was a little bit of that from an early age. And I remember at the time living in East Lansing, Michigan, I could walk to the movie theater downtown East Lansing, maybe a half a mile and go see a, a movie by myself starting five, six years old. And I remember I was about six or seven. And I went to the Lucon Theater in East Lansing, Michigan, and I saw Burt Lancaster in a Swashbuckler movie. And I can't remember exactly what the time, maybe it was Swashbuckler was the title, Captain something maybe. But I came back to the table and we were eating dinner and my mom had put dinner out. My mom said, how was the movie? I said, it was really great. And I said, I'm gonna be a movie star because you know I didn't know at the time that what I really meant was I was going to be an actor. I didn't know what an actor really was. I just knew movie stars. Even the people in plays to me at six were movie stars. I didn't understand what that was. And they looked at me and, and then they went about eating. And I started imitating Burt Lancaster that day at dinner. I remember cracking him up. I was going, ha, 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 pass me the ketchup <laughs> at like six. And I had him cracking up. And then, of course, later in my life, I got to work with Burt Lancaster and Field of Dreams. And I just sort of knew. Then it became, how do I make it? Now, Kurt Russell, who oddly enough is connected to, to Peter Quill, as we find out in, the, in subsequent movies and, and things like that, was a pro baseball player. And also an actor, a movie star when I was a kid, but also Kurt Russell's the best actor baseball player of that level 
that we've ever had. And I remember reading about him in sporting news when I was 15, 16 years old. I was reading his stats, playing minor league ball in the Texas League. And I was watching his career like we talked about with baseball cards and stuff. And I thought, you know, maybe if I become a pro baseball player, then I can become an actor. I knew I wanted to be an actor, but I didn't know there was a path. And then when I got into college and actually went to college to play baseball and then ended up getting hurt, my shoulder got hurt and I I couldn't play baseball anymore after I sat in the coach's office with the doctor and the coach and they going over x-rays and everything. And I said, where's the theater department? You know, that world wasn't mine anyway. They thought I was just some silly guy. And I was, and I was that way on the field. I was that way in the dugout. I was that way as a baseball player. I was doing Burt Lancaster, walking up to home plate. You know what I mean? Doing the guys. So I went over and auditioned for a play and I got a part. And then I realized, wait a minute, there's a path to being an actor, just like there is an athlete. High school drama, college drama, minor league drama, TV movies, Broadway, and so on. And so I embarked on that path. There is a path for all those kids out there and by listening, saying, I want to be an actor, but I don't know how. It's just like sports. Go do high school, then do college, then do a regional theater off, off Broadway, off Broadway, then Broadway, then commercials, TV, movies. And I just took that traditional path. Other people might have family that brings them in, but my path was um, traditional and very much like most of the working actors that you know. That's great. It's kind of beautiful and just like thinking about you loved baseball, even though you couldn't play baseball, you had this great experience with Field of Dreams. You loved Spider-Man and, and the, the comic stories and the sci-fi and the fantasy. And and later, you know, you can find those avenues. You love theater, like seeing your path sort of open up and getting to experience the things that you truly seem to love is a lot of fun. You've also done, you know, directing and, and working on this stuff and thinking about your the radio plays and stuff. What's that experience like for you, both as an actor, but thinking about it from your sort of the director part of your brain as you start to go through a project like this, do you start to, as you're performing, think about, mm, oh, I like how this is done differently than maybe television or or other stuff? Well, I mean, that's really, I tell you what, in this, my first time in this format of being, you know, the old time radio and Kimberly Senior having a great director, a great theater director, moving us through the process. I learned a lot. I picked her brains a lot and really was able to watch. But one of the great things about acting, especially at this point right here, having had directed so much, is that I really relish not having to think like a director. And once you've directed, you know, 150 hours of television, you know, which equals probably 50 or 60 feature films, amount of action sequences and talking sequences and walk and talks and period pieces, and you've done all that, the mental work that goes into all of that math to making sure all of that gets done in the right amount of hours with at the right amount of money. That becomes a, a just such a bear on your back. And, and, you know, you have other people helping you, but it still comes down to you. You're the director. You're the only one that can change a, a schedule to make sure you make your day. You can't, you're the only one responsible. And as an actor, <laughs> I'm like, uh, no mas. Uh, I don't want to deal with that at all. I don't want to think about that at all. So, you know, whether I'm acting on a TV show or acting, you know, for Marvel and I'm not directing, 
I really separate. I compartmentalize my work off to acting and I don't think about what I do do is I probably behave in a way that is more conducive to a director, actor, working relationship partnership. I've had enough actors be pain in the asses that I don't want to be that guy. And I can also help sometimes if I feel a story points being missed, but that's the same thing I would have done in Revenge of the Nerds, you know, when we made that as a young actor in film, it was I was very vocal in Revenge of the Nerds about how we play scenes and how scenes read and what story was going on. And Jeff Canoe and I really got along well in that form and and we had a I think a tighter ensemble because of it. So as a leading actor in stories, it's my job to make sure that the story is consistent all the way to the end. But where the lens is or what size lens they're gonna use or how they're gonna shoot it handheld or on a dolly or how they're gonna light it, I'm relieved to not have to think about that at all. I'm sure. Does any of that change when you're now talking about audio? I mean, you've done a little bit of voice work, right? Some voice work in the past? I mean, I've done a little bit, you know, some commercials and stuff like that, but never anything like this. Never. No, no, no. I've never played a cartoon character or an animated character. I've never done that before. I've never experienced that. So look, Benjamin made it all so clear. I was able to read them all, right? So I saw the story and what he'd given me as a leading man, you know, I mean, what, how he had laid out his entire story, which he blew me away, honestly. I mean, the, I think when, when listeners take this on, they're going to have a very dense, fun ride that has been tended to beautifully by the writer. And, you know, I've been in Academy Award nominated movies and, and, and I've worked with Pulitzer Prize, Tony Award plays and TV shows that won Emmys, certainly between the West Wing. I've read great scripts. I've read great movies and I've read bad scripts. And as a professional sort of athlete actor, I have to play for the Yankees, but I also have to play for the Kansas City Royals uh, that might be 40 games out of first place. So that writing may not be as good as some of the other writing. And we live on writing in our medium. It all really comes from, stems from the script. So Ben's script was just, everyone was really, really great and smart. And uh, he did a lot of that work for me. We would talk about it occasionally and I knew it, but I think I knew it more from being a lead actor in, in a lot of things, you know? A, a Few Good Men on Broadway, you're setting stuff up for the end scene at 10.50 at night at 8.01. And you learn when you work with Sorkin on Broadway or Neil Simon or Marsha Norman, these great playwrights, when you're doing their stuff, you know, and you're a lead in their stuff, you really know that your story's on your back and you're setting up and paying off and setting up and paying off. And I do look for that. And when I'm a supporting player of Field of Dreams, I, I know my job because it's a fantasy of, of sorts is to get the audience to leap over me as the antagonist and really cinch themselves to the protagonist. That's the antagonist's job, to make sure the audience doesn't want you to win. And that was not my part here. That's Dylan Baker's part. That's Vanessa Williams' part. That's even Danny Glover is there to support me, comes in and he goes. But when you have a lead character, it's really on you to make sure that you understand the entire story and scope of the story and make sure that you're setting up and paying off. And and Ben, you know, he made that really, really clear what Peter Quill was thinking and what he wanted. And, and uh, he follows through right to the very end. 
I'm going to text Ben after this interview and tell him how much crap you're talking about as well. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm uh, a fan. Me too. He's, he's a great dude. You know, thinking about sort of the time that y'all have done this production in and, and you know, obviously during the pandemic and, and the way, you know, we have to produce things, you know, normally we'd probably be sitting in a room together to talk about this. But for you guys, I imagine it was all over these Zoom calls. Does that change anything about the way you produce this when you're not actually next to your fellow actors and your director? You know, interesting. Between the pandemic, you know, ideally you'd have Chris Elliott and I who plays, you know, Rocket, the sidekick, you know, we'd be able to play off of each other and, and in the room. I think with technology, the way it's come about, having separate tracks being recorded on separate tracks was great and allowed for us to play. For me, I like to paraphrase in rehearsal. So in this form, I had to get into it. I would improvise into it. And Kimberly Sr. knew what I was doing and she would back it up. But I wouldn't have any problem if the first line in the scene is, hey, Rocket, I might say, what are we doing here? This is completely, how did we end up in this place? Hey, Rocket. And that early improvising or paraphrasing would allow me to enter the scene. I had to do that because we didn't have that rehearsal you might have on a movie or it isn't really clear. You're not working with the other actor. So you can, you know, the director right there. And it didn't bother her at all. And it didn't bother the other actors at all. They were all really great with it. But because I hadn't done radio before, because I hadn't done a lot of on microphone performances, whether it's animated work or anything, I had to use the process that I would know from movies. And in movies, I would do that. When we were doing Field of Dreams, it took a week to shoot the bleacher sequence at the end of the movie. We were having to pick up scenes a lot in that movie mid-scene over the course of days, as you do on a feature. And I remember one day just looking at Kevin and and we were about to, I could, they were slating and we were there and makeup had done their stuff and hair had done their stuff. I said, you're an idiot. And the crew went, and Kevin looked at me and I said, you're an absolute idiot. I mean, uh, my sister, I love her. And then Kevin realized right away I was being Mark, the character. I wasn't. And none of the dialogue that I was saying was in the scene. And you could see the director go, 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 because it was my close up. And I didn't want to act right on action. I just didn't have those skills to be able to act. I wanted to ramp into it. And the scene, there'd been four or five minutes before this moment. And after that, Kevin was like, let's do that thing. You know, because we all realized that we were picking up so much stuff in the middle that it was just a device to help me get into the performance. Now, I didn't really hear any other actor do that throughout this 10 episodes, but they were all experienced actors that had played characters in animation before on on. Uh, They'd done the voice work. And um, so I sort of took the best I could athletically to get to a place where I was at their level and stealing from the movie work. So that's how I adjusted to not having that much experience doing, you know, animated characters. That's really fascinating to think about how you sort of backtrack on to what you do know and then flow that into here. And I'm sure, you know, as you go back into features or TV or stuff, sort of utilizing different things now that you've learned after doing 10 episodes of this and, and feeding that back into your work. It's it's a constant process, I'm sure. It is. It's a good, but I look forward to, when you ask about learning, I look forward to sharing those experiences. You know, I mean, it's fun. That's fun. Look, I like to act. 
actors like to act, you know, and the actors that, that have worked for a long career, they probably enjoy it just like they did when they were little kids. So, and yet, you know, we want to evolve. So anything that will help us be better, more real, more affecting, especially in a leading role, you know, where it's really kind of on your back to get to the finish line, you know, we'll use, we'll steal and, and take and evolve in any way we can. I want to sort of shift gears a little bit, talk about uh, music, because music is so important to the way we conceive of what the Guardians of the Galaxy, what these characters are all about. So important to to Star-Lord's story, and in particular for this format. Sound design is also so incredible, and we have really talented folks behind all that. Was that part of the process for you? Uh, were you hearing music or some of that sound design as you were you were performing? How does that integrate into uh, everything? Well, Ben wrote it in there, you know, right just before a major confrontation. Quill's like, hang on, hang on. I got to get the music going. And of course, Rocket's like, what are you, nuts? You know, I mean, there's no time for that. You know, hang on, hang on, hang on. You know, you really get that he needs it. So, you know, it came from Ben in the scripts and, and you know, all the different forms of Peter Quill. Are you a music guy yourself? I mean, music is so important to my life. I think about music a lot just in, in what I do. My daughter is 20 months old. So like music oh, is- that's so, great. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, Your life is over. <laughs> it's just begun. It's just that's begun, Timothy. Uh, you're right. I have seven grandkids. So uh, congratulations. It's amazing. Yeah, it's and so I, I think about the ways and my wife, she has like a PhD in, in ethnomusicology and, oh, that's and she, great. she plays multiple instruments and you know, music is so important. I do you have a particular type of music that, you know, works for you? You know, I sort of stopped listening to music when Steely Dan broke up the first time. That was sort of it for me. It was the Beatles and then, you know, growing up with the Beach Boys and the Beatles and then I wasn't necessarily a Stones guy then and then Steely Dan was through high school and Credence and and those guys, those guys up till 77, uh, 78. But, you know, I remember I got Thriller and Lionel Richie's big album in 84. And I would put the cassettes on throughout Revenge of the Nerds on any break. I was listening to the Beatles. I was listening to Steely Dan. I was listening to Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Those guys having music was key for me. A lot of the music that we would associate with Peter Quill was not my music. Yet I understood where music sat with him. My trailer's banging with music, you know, all the time. And I have actors that say to me, can you turn it down a little bit? You know, I want music helps me get in the mood for scenes. And it helps me a lot. And actors are, it's not uncommon for actors to put on headphones and stuff to tune themselves out. So for me, music is vital. It's been in my life forever and helpful to me as an actor. Yeah. All right. As we wrap up here, you know, thinking about the series as a whole, obviously, Old Man Star-Lord is available now. Uh, everybody can go check it out. But do you have a, a particular moment, sequence thing without spoiling too much that you think fondly of when you think of this series? You know, you know, obviously reading the scripts and doing the performances, there's a lot of really cool bits and parts and um, ebbs and flows to this story. Was there anything that, you know, you really want fans to look forward to? You know what? I think that the relationship between Quill and, and Rocket in this 10-episode arc, it's so strong. And Ben has written just so beautifully that relationship. And I think uh, the audience will enjoy getting a bit deeper than just the sort of caustic back and forth. I think we, you know, now have come into these guys 30 years later than we've ever seen them as a couple of guys who together 
have continued to work side by side. And that love for each other, more than any other people, any other superheroes that have been in and around them that we know of, that relationship and my relationship with Chris Elliott, I mean, he's a friend forever now. I love that guy. And I sort of fell in love with Chris Elliott as a man as I fell in love with Rocket as a character, as Quill. And I think that's just one of the great sidekick relationships of two guys that have been, you know, conning people and grifting people for decades and how much that banter, especially that Benjamin Percy has given us, is fueled by love and not necessarily fueled by anything antagonistic. I mean, this is his best friend and always will be his best friend. And so that buddy movie aspect of this, you know, Peter Quill is Star-Lord. Peter Quill is, you know, that character. But Rocket is also equally right there at his side through everything. And and uh, I think fans will, will enjoy that a lot, that relationship and that arc throughout the 10 episodes. Agreed. Timothy, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for uh, sharing an hour of your time with us. Well, Ryan, it was great. I'm, I was glad to be here. I love talking to you. And if you see Ben, tell him uh, I chop wood. <laughs> I can chop wood. I planted right. a garden. I built a chicken coop. Ooh. All right. I'll I'll let him know. All right, big thanks again to Timothy for coming on the show. All episodes of Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord are now available on SiriusXM or wherever you get your podcasts. Lorraine, who are our guests next week? Well, next week we have some friends coming over from the HasLab of it all, talking about toys, 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 toys with Jesse Falcon from Disney and Dwight Salt from Hasbro. And we're going to talk toys with the Tall boys. I don't know. That was talk toys with the tall boys. That is the name of my new podcast that me, Jesse and Dwight are going to do. I'm all about it. It's weird to call Jesse from Disney, even though that's true. I know because he's worked with us for like five million years. He's been at Marvel slash Toy Biz slash, you know, whatever for 27 years. So no. Yeah. In the interview, we discuss how he was an intern at 1991, started at Toy Biz in 1994. So in the spirit, what is your favorite Marvel toy? Send us pics if you want. I don't know. Let's get wild. Let's see uh, what what you got that you love from the Marvel Universe. You know, that's a really tough question. I was thinking like, I have so many, you know, so many ones that I love. My Galactus figures, I think the ones that I've had from the Marvel Universe line are among my favorites from Marvel. When I was younger, it was like the Secret Wars figures and then... I loved the famous covers figures for a while. Mm. Those were really great. Right now, yeah, I, I think just the Build-A-Figure line is among my favorites. But I think hopefully we get our Galactus. Everybody go to HasbroPulse.com and support the HasLab. And so that way we can get our Galactus. I think that will eventually be my favorite. I really, of, of recent note, am really obsessed with my Squirrel Girl Hasbro figure with her Vespa and her squirrels. It's so cute. It makes me constantly happy. I have her all posed on my shelf. It's just so nice. That's great. I love her. So we want to hear what your favorite Marvel toy is. You can tweet your answers using hashtag This Week in Marvel. Email them to twimpodcast at marvel.com or send a message to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash This Week in Marvel. Please, of course... 
make sure to tell us. It is okay to read on the show so we can read it on the show. Yeah, and we have some questions, comments, and colorful commentary from our community this week. Our question of the week last week was, what is your favorite or most upsetting Marvel dystopia since we were talking with Timothy Busfield of Marvel's Wastelanders this week? So let's find out who is sad. Karis Pollard at A. Karis Pollard tweeted, I just now realized I haven't read a lot of Marvel dystopias, but needed to shout out the recent Captain Marvel arc in a dystopian future, bleak but full of the best people. Very true. I want to send love to Karis as well because someone stole a piece of her like outdoor furniture. Mm. As homeowners, I get it. We have like chairs and little things outside and at like three o'clock in the morning, my camera in the back of the house went off and it woke me up and I looked at it and a friggin' raccoon was <laughs> jumping all over one of Catherine's play tables out in the back. That giant raccoon must have been like 40 pounds, opened up a trash bin on the side of the house, rifled through the trash, picked out some like chicken bones, went back to the table and ate the chicken bones on the table. I'm sorry. I know that this is upsetting for you, but this is the best raccoon's day out. Best day. <laughs> that raccoon was just like, I'm going to go pick up a meal. Yep. I'm going to eat at the dining table. That raccoon was on a little me date. Andrew Nickerson at Andrew Nickers 19 said, I got to go with the nightmare scenario from Wolverine and the X-Men where Professor X wakes up to find that most of the world is gone because the Hellfire Club tried to control the Phoenix who wiped everyone out. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. Fabio Chacon at Fabio Chacon says, I say the future ruled by Apocalypse, in which Cable was raised as portrayed by Gene Ha in The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. The visuals were stunning. That is such a great mm -hmm. deep dive. Gene Ha, one of my favorite artists. That art in that book is incredible. That's a great dystopia. There's a couple of collections of that book out there. Anybody should go read that. It's beautiful. Thank you for that one, Fabio. The Hound at The Hound React says, I loved the dark ruins at the end of time as seen in Aaron King's Thor. Something about humanity trying to push on, but entropy itself is slowly closing in. So brutal, but so inevitable. Jason gave us a lot of great stuff in his Thor run, including that. Mm -hmm. James T. King at James T. King P1 says, No other choice. Days of future past. Two issues perfectly created a terrible world with just enough hope to keep pushing through all the tragedy. A classic. Next up, we have James Baker at The Video James, who says, I really love the Marvel world infected with the zombie virus. We see zombie movies all the time, but it's just humans being scared and shooting them in the head. Imagine how zombie Wolverine running at you would scare the heckin' heck out of you. <laughs> yeah, those are gross, but they're also kind of funny at the same time. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a good mix. Dave Littler at Dave Littler says, the perfect hideousness of old man Logan really tops them all. A world where everything falls apart, not as a result of any single disaster, but because of the selfishness, pettiness, and neglect of the villains who mistakenly thought they could rule the world. That's a great one. I don't think we discussed that one last mm -hmm. week when we were talking. That's so good. Next up, we have an email from Dylan Dusalt, which says, my favorite dystopian Marvel future will have to be The Wastelands. I was first introduced to The Wastelands from my favorite Wolverine story of all time. And one of my favorite comics of all time, 
Wolverine, Old Man Logan by Mark Miller and Steve McNiven. Then Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord came out and I just fell in love with the Wastelands. P.S. Read Wolverine, Old Man Logan if you have not. And then there's a ton more to follow up on that. There's uh, Hawkeye series. There's the Quill series. Mm -hmm. There's the Old Man Logan like ongoing that really follows him into Dead Man Logan. Lots of great comics in that story. All right, we got a Facebook message from Walter Gamble who says, Hello, I'm Walter, a.k.a. Big Nasty. Recently started listening to podcasts, and I love your podcast so much. What is your favorite X-Men or Avengers movie? Big Nasty, thank you. Welcome to podcast. I'm so glad you're enjoying the show. Come on, favorite X-Men or Avengers movies? That's a... Can I count Marvel Studios, Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame? Yeah, I feel like that's one movie. It's six hours long, but it's one movie. I have to watch it again soon. Anything beating Marvel Studios Avengers Endgame after seeing the rest of the films, like, come on. It's like kind of impossible to beat. Epic cast, epic story, epic ending. But for the longest time, I think Marvel Studios Guardians of the Galaxy, the first movie, was like, ooh, that was my favorite. And I was like mm -hmm. holding on to that. But also the first film, Marvel Studios Iron Man, so good. Yeah. So good. Like, I just went back and watched it the other day, and I'm like, this holds up. This is good. Yeah. But also, the very first X-Men film, like the mm -hmm. very, very first one back in the 2000s, I watched that DVD every day at lunch. Like, I would come home from school and watch it and eat my lunch every day. Every day I watched that movie for like two years. <laughs> And I don't You're a strange know woman. I like it. <laughs> I don't know why. I was just obsessed with it. I think it was mostly Hugh Jackman, but like whatever. Yeah, I would put out Logan is an incredible, incredible, oh, upsetting, so wonderful film. God, and good. I have a, a deep love for the Wolverine because I was on set a couple of times for that. Mm. And so like, yeah, it's good too. Just feeling the connection to that movie in a different way. So yeah, that was pretty neat. Next up, we've got an email from William Rose, which says, hello again, twin host. This is fellow Marvelite William R. from Port St. Lucie, Florida. Before I begin my answer, thank you so much for answering my question from last year. Hope JMI is doing well while away from hosting duties. Since then, I read all of the Reign of X issues up until recently as of the 28th of July, 2021, and they are delivering promise after promise from earlier plot lines and callbacks via the character quotes pages. I also got to experience the first, but never the last Hellfire Gala that will be forever an important part of not just the X line in general, but showing the way of celebrating what mutant kind can do for the world and slowly vice versa. I rate this event a triple D. The D this time stands for diamond. Jerry Duggan's X-Men number one, gave me a hint of what the next gala election might focus on, looking at you, Scott and Lorna. Lastly, I just got my hands on the Marvel-made Chris Claremont Paragon collection. It's as big as a dictionary with some proof from a pic below. I hope you guys got your copies as well to discuss the new incontinuity stories included in this very book for a future episode. With that said, here's my answer to this week's question. My favorite upsetting, <laughs> upsetting setting in a future dystopia is set within Powers of X number six, occurring within year 1000, Moira's sixth life, and that contains lots of important things to prevent them from happening. The librarian, post-humanity, the phalanx, ascension, and 
some redacted secrets in a Moira's Journal data page that I hope will be revealed once Inferno releases. Speaking of which, if any reader wants to try this as a fun challenge to prepare for the 160-page event, replay the Tramp's hit song, Disco Inferno, <laughs> from the start to the end of each Inferno issue to get through those dramatic, interesting, progressive, and yet heartbreaking moments. The next, but never the last, phase of X is near. To end my twin letter, I'm excited to play Marvel's Future Revolution, and I hope to play Peter Parker and Storm when it comes out. I just attended the Marvel live stream seeing the smart cap winning. I mean... Who doesn't love a little Modoc purple on him? And congratulations to Marvel Studios Loki for giving birth to Marvel Studios What If. My two separate questions to you guys, what variants of characters will you be co-oping as when the game releases? And do Inferno, The Trial of Magneto, The Last Annihilation, and The Dark Cold carry some important interconnectivity? Thank you for reading my letter. Stay safe and excelsior. William R. Great letter, William. So much to dig into there. The idea of listening to Disco Inferno while reading what is going to be an emotional and action-packed and probably devastating <laughs> series like Inferno might be the right thing to do. Again, Mystique gonna burn it all down, I hope. All right, so the question about Marvel Future Revolution, what characters will we be playing when the game releases? I would say... Storm is so good. I really like playing a Storm in the game. I really like Captain America, too. Storm is a flyer. Cap is my general, like, ground and pound dude. He's he's a whole lot of fun. Yeah, I always want to go with Ground Warrior because I do not like doing ranged attacks. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much to focus on. I like to punch things. Punch. Fair. Yeah. Punch, punch. And then the question about the the various stories that you mentioned, Inferno, Trial of Magneto, Last Annihilation, and Darkhold, do they have connectivity? I don't know that there's any connectivity outside of the Marvel Universe being connected and, and stuff that happens in one book could have things that affect the others. Obviously, Trial of Magneto and Inferno being core X-Men stories definitely do have repercussions for each other, I'm sure. Last Annihilation does affect the sword books and some mutant stuff, so you'll see that in there. Darkhold, uh, that's just a big, scary, weird story, and I'm excited to read it, so I'm not sure. And there you have it. We're not sure, but we're here every ding-dang week. <laughs> yeah, and we will give you answers when we find them out. That's a wrap for us. This episode of This Week in Marvel was produced by Alexis Williams, Zachary Goldberg, Isabel Robertson, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Nogos. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. And Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. Special thanks to Mystique's Sneaks. Blend into any background with Mystique's Sneaks. She'll sneak up on you. Gotta go. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. This is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs>